This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 335 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. And for this episode, this is the first episode that I've ever recorded in the country of England here uh, with my family for a personal vacation. And I thought, you know what? I, I have to take the opportunity. I have to do what I normally do, which is ruin every family vacation by trying to find some way to shoehorn work into it. Uh, and I can say that because my son, Will, is looking at me uh, and he knows what I'm talking about right here. Um, I, I do it commonly and I've, of course, been doing this for years and years and years in this kind of same kind of way. Um, but I reach out. Well, actually, let me tell the story after I introduce uh, Evan O'Rourden, uh, founder of The Colonel the brewery here in London. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thank you very much for having me, Jamie. I reached out to my friend, Matt Curtis, uh, editor of Pellicle and a uh, longtime British beer writer and, and asked him like, you know, if I have time for just a few things in London, what do I need to do? And he gave me an even longer list than I could ever hope to hope to uh, uh, hit. Um, but then he said, if there's only one thing that you can do, you should talk to Evan at the Colonel because it's such an important piece of the craft beer story in London. And so that's why we're here. That's why I'm here right now. Uh, and over the course of this next hour, we're going to talk uh, to Evan about the Colonel's approach to making craft beer here in a very uh, beer-loving country uh, with so many long brewing traditions. We're going to talk about how they navigate those, both the traditional side of those traditions and the creative side of those traditions, and also find ways uh, to put the Colonel stamp on these beers. Um, that also carry a lot of uh, ideas and definitions around them for for beer drinkers in the country. Um, you know, there's a heavy weight to that, and uh, we're going to talk about how they find the space, the both the creative and the technical space within you know this uh, broader, bigger, you know, well-established uh, beer country um, for the creative expressions of the Colonel. Before we do that, for years, GND Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with three thousand plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built, offering 24-7 service and support. GD builds with non-proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. GD's in-house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over 30 years. They offer free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG and their partners, HVG who bring you the very best in German hops, including Amira, the latest from their hop breeding program. With its classic hoppy, slightly herbal, and zesty lemon aromas, it's the ideal hop for those looking to capture the traditional flavor of a classic German lager. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes. To get started, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. And if you, you hear some of those noises in the background, the kernel is literally under train tracks. Like the brewery, the tap room, the, the warehouse, it is all under these old arches underneath the train lines. And so um, we felt like it would just be dishonest to have a, a podcast uh, you know, with the Colonel where you didn't get the full train experience. It seems to imbue everything that you do. We all know some brewers that um, you know, 
play certain types of music to their fermenting beer in order to get certain effects. You know, transmuting sound into pulses of actual physical sure. vibrations through the beer. So for us, for us, it's a train line. It's not quite as romantic, is it? As, it's as that is creating those, those low frequency rumbles that are somehow aiding, it might helping do in something. that yeast propagation. It might do something. Interesting. That is the, the house character is uh, you know driven by trains. All right, Evan. What, why don't you uh, why don't you uh, give us the, the kernel story about you know your personal story and then uh, and how that intersected with beer and then um, what then led to creating the Kernel Brewery here in London. So immediately prior to setting up the brewery, I'd been working in cheese. So I worked in cheese in here in London for eight, nine, ten years maybe. My dad taught dairy science microbiology. He taught a number of brewers actually who ended up kind of that I know over here who, who had my dad as a teacher back back in Ireland. Um, fermentation, grew, fermentation is fermentation. Microbiology is all the little critters that do wonderful things in, in, yeah, in every form of fermentation. I grew up in Ireland. I studied in Ireland when I left college, had an open horizon in front of me. Left Ireland as it's a wonderful place, but it's quite a small island and as you probably have met from maybe meeting some Irish people on your travels, they like to, you know, travel, move away. Um, so coming over here, I, I got a job selling cheese. Um, I, w I was also studying at the same time, doing a PhD, various other things. But the brewery came from a trip that I made to New York. My old employers, Neil's Yard Dairy, were helping Whole Foods open a cheese shop in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and they needed somebody to go over there for a couple of months to help set up the cheese shop, train the staff, you know, set up all the systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I got that gig, which was really not the worst gig in the world, you know. Sweet gig. What year was this? This was 2007. I'm pretty sure I remember that cheese shop. We lived in New York City at the same at the time. So and, this uh, was on the Bowery in Houston. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it's gone they, now. I think yeah. they replaced it with a beer they no. did put in a nice beer store there. The beer store wasn't there when I was there because the shop had just opened and there was some licensing issue. So mm. it was just an empty space. Uh, I'm, uh, the cheese shop itself, I don't think it worked quite as well as they hoped. Mm. They built a lot of it before I got over and it wasn't really the way it maybe should have been done in mm. my head anyway. Okay. <laughs> but I'd be talking to the, the guys I met there. I'd be teaching them about cheese, telling them about who made it the various different recipes, the historical importance, you know, what type of milk, what type of land, you know, what type of culture this whole thing comes from. Um, and my abiding memories of, are of going out around the corner to a, mainly to a bar called DBA's because it was just around the corner. Oh, DBA. Is that first, first, first half, right? Yeah. 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 Between it, second and third. And it, yep. um, oh, you know, have, I'd never seen anything yeah, like it. Yeah. And the guys would sit me down and go, you could try that IPA, but it's different to this one for these reasons, made by this person, whereas that person prefers this sort of style, this person prefers this sort of hopping, this per and it might, you know, it was just like, it, it both went over my head completely because I had no idea what they were talking about and also it made complete sense because sure, it was the same sure. language that I was using about cheese to talk to them. They were just reflecting it back to me about beer and I just had never considered beer in that way. Growing up in Ireland, you know, I would drink Guinness from, sure, you know, Maybe an age beer before beer. I was right. supposed to be drinking Guinness, but beer is beer, and you and you drink it in the similar way that beer is consumed in England. It's it's such a part of the culture that you don't almost even question it. And so having the you know my eyes opened in this sort of way, with a language that I could understand, there's just an approach to eating and drinking. You know, I mean, sure. 
talking about wine in that way would have been completely normal to me. Talking about beer in this way was suddenly a moment, an epiphany. And then that epiphany turned into like, oh, wait, why is that not happening here? And I, I, actually, it was. It was already happening. There were people who were paying attention to what they were drinking in terms of beer, but it was small and very far apart. There was no community as such, I suppose, sure, on, sure. On, on the level of a, a movement. Certainly suppose, not which compared was what, to what was happening in the United exactly. States at that time. And there was all that excitement around it. And New York and, and, was even kind of slow. New York City itself yeah, was slow. So down. I heard, yeah. I New mean, York's, a lot of the beers we were drinking there were, were not from New York. Not from there, right. It there took were another few, three, three or four years before breweries themselves started moving into New York City. It was always a great beer town. You could always drink beer that yeah. came from other places and there were great publicans that, that found those and brought those to people, but it wasn't, it only became a making town, you know, after about 20, 2011, okay. 2012. Yeah, yeah, then, then that's kind of after my experience. But sure. then, yeah, you could find these, where else did I, yeah, Spoyton Doyville was near where mm -hmm. I was staying. Sure, in Williamsburg. sure. And, you know, you should wander around there on my day off and just, you know, just mugs just, in Williamsburg always yes, had a yeah, great, uh, yeah, great yeah. craft beer selection there. Yeah. yeah. And it Ging wasn't Ginger like, Man in Midtown in the, the 30s, yes. 36, I think it was. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I came back here and, and just started homebrewing. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you tasting get a lot that, of homebrewers listening tasting to that, your Tasting that beer was enough to say, hey, I want to try to make beer now. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I, yeah. My dad had made some homebrews when I was, sure. when I was younger and they were. But yeah, we had, you know, exploding things in the cupboard and all sorts. So sure, there, there was some, sure, you know, sure. there was some trauma yeah, that had yeah. to be dealt with in order for this to be overcome. Um, so you come back here and you start homebrewing. Yeah. So, yeah, I spent a couple of years, you know, working and then homebrewing. Um, first of all, I mean, yeah, there was an idea to like, does this have any legs? And obviously the first question you need to ask yourself is, well, can I, can you, what is it like to make beer? Is this something that you actually want to physically do, you know? Sure. Because I've been involved in cheese for a long time and I love it. But I very quickly learned that actually making cheese was not where my passion was, I suppose. Sure. I mean, I have a passion for it. But waking up at 5 a.m. to milk animals, you know, which is really the essence of it. I mean, you can make, you can get, get milk from somewhere else, but it's, it's not quite the same thing. Right. You know, so, you know, maybe beer production was like that, maybe brewing, maybe I wouldn't enjoy it. So, yeah, I'm in a homebrew for a while. And as you know, homebrewing allows you just to do everything all at once, change change 17 variables, be as scientific or as not, you know, be creative, be stupid, be, you know. Sure. Hopefully not injurious to anybody's health by, by you know, making bad decisions. Yeah, after a while you figure, okay, you can make something that's reasonable. And then, yeah, a little bit of faith, I suppose, that you have an idea that will that will get you somewhere. So we started off on a 2009, so two years later, we I opened the brewery um, on a, you know, a whimsically small budget of tiny amounts of money making. You know, our kit was 600 liters at a time. So it's probably like five US barrels, something like that, mm. five, six, um, which was small. <laughs> Small, is. but lower stakes. And oh, yeah, it was just a, me a and some friends to help out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We had another railway arch, you know, about, um, we, we were about uh, half a mile down the road. Yeah. Sharing with some friends because, you know, rent was expensive. So from my cheese making days, one friend was making cheese in that arch and another friend was importing Italian cheese and ham and stuff. Um, and we all moved together. So the, 
the ham and cheese guys just on that side and and kept casing the cheesemakers is you know a block down that way so we're still here in the same family in the same neighborhood but yeah but we started off sharing one of these arches together divided up into a brewery cheese making and, um and that also you know it shared the you know the burden but also the right personal side of things you had somebody you know just to help you dig a drain or sure. paint something or make a sign or whatever it is that needed doing of which there's always a lot yeah you didn't have to deal with the same kind of solitary act of uh of brewing alone you had other people around you that were also creatively minded that uh you know at least felt like you were doing something together now you're exactly three arches four arches here three yeah that's quite a bit different than the early days yeah and you know there's there's 20 of us working here total including the tap room so it's still a you know it's still a relatively small business but yeah compared to the early days when sure. you're doing everything and you're getting friends to come in and help and return for beer so yeah yeah well let's uh i want to talk you know next uh, the question i would normally kick or I, I always kick this off with was you know the kind of creative spark behind the brewery you know every brewery starts generally with an idea there's enough it's an it's not just enough to say, I want to make beer. You generally need to have an idea of what kind of beer you're going to make, why you're going to make it and have some purpose that drives it, you know, more than just, um, you know, I want to make money from it. And, uh, and so I want to talk to you about that. You know, clearly you're a thoughtful person. You, you come at this, you know, with a, a mission and a purpose behind it. And that has to translate into what you want to make and how and why you want to make it that way. Um, so I want to talk about that, but first pro brew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock Profil rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between hundred and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. Also, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. All right, Evan. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk about that kind of creative spark. You now you've homebrewed enough where you realized you wanted to make and sell beer commercially you wanted to pursue this as a business what was what was the kind of genesis of the creative idea behind the kernel how, how did you decide what beers you were going to make and what identity people would then ascribe to the kernel how they were going to think about it uh, obviously this is early early 20 teens uh, you know you could go lots of different directions at that point with it and uh, and you chose your direction what is that kernel direction i mean i think the direction was hops, but yeah, you know, hops mean lots of different things, and, and the meaning has changed. You know, sure, sure, so much over the last fifteen right, years. Right, right. Um, hops were almost what I n hadn't ever really discovered drinking beer here. You know, say if I drank Guinness or, you know, hops appear as a you know in a cask English bitter or, or whatever. There were hops in in lagers, but but nothing appeared clearly until say that trip to the States where somebody pulls out something and go, 
Columbus is in this beer, and then suddenly your brain goes, you know, I have a flavor I can associate with the word Columbus. Or, you know, I mean, in those days, it might be something like a... Citra was three hearted. So yeah, this was before Citra. So I, just, I didn't, don't think I remember. Yeah, so, yeah. so three hearted would have been a centennial beer. So our first yeah. commercial beer was was with Centennial. Citra had, I mean, I, I didn't get access to Citra at least until a year later. Well, I mean, it was not not a loss. I didn't know it existed. Sure, it's sure. fine. Um, but th- there was a very specific, not just the hops, but I suppose also a clarity of flavor. So there was a very specific type of American pale ale or IPA that was about the hops in a clear and precise way that, I mean, we're all familiar with now. So, you know, what I'm saying inspired me is, is sure. absolutely the most banal thing in the universe because maybe that's exactly what, in, you know, entices so many people to drink beer. But to my mind, I hadn't really seen it before or come across it before. And it just, you know, is one of those things that just made absolute sense. Um, what, what actually even clarified that further was coming back here and then trying to find some of these American beers that I'd drunk in New York and say yeah, I could find, you know, I mean, I was living in Brooklyn and you could find Brooklyn lager everywhere, which is, you know, a wonderful baseline if that's all you could find at that sure. point in time. Over here, I could find Brooklyn lager. And, I, you know, I'd be really excited. You go grab a bottle and then crack it open, chill it, drink it, and then realize... And it really took me quite a while to figure out that, oh, but this bottle is like nine months old, you know, and it's been sat in somewhere warm and and suddenly it's like, okay, so there's also a point to being local and and maybe part of that point is also being fresh. Um, And so then you're kind of, you're building up this conception of what beer and what the important points are, you know, to be local, to be fresh, you know. I mean, you're like the question you're asking me. What 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 are you trying to get out of it? Right. What are you trying to make? Who are you as a brewer, and and what are your beers? Um, and so for for me, the uh, it's always been trying to f- make you know a clear and distinct, in this case, pale ale, that was just trying to express itself, but you know in a clear and precise way. So you know, for us over here, in a sense, that means using like using American yeast, you know using the California Yale yeast mm-hmm. because for me when I'm talking about that sort of just that specific relatively neutral yeast that provides a wonderful platform for hops to do their thing so yeah the first commercial beer we made was a centennial pale ale it's a single hop centennial the malt bill was pretty plain we probably added a few caramels but a tiny amount We've, we stopped doing that after a while so mm-hmm. the base on our pale ales is just English Maris Otter Calale yeast and quite often just one type of hop and that's that's kind of still how we roll yeah but that i mean that was that yeah i mean clarity things have changed, and focused but that's, no, I, that's I, how it I, happened i, I love know. how the, i love i love hearing it from your perspective right because from my perspective you know and amongst american brewers we see the exact inverse of that right where historically belgian german English imported styles, by the time they make it to the United States, the beers that we hold up as the models to try to, you know, make iterations of don't taste like they should. And so, you know, we've had, you know, you know, and the, the exact opposite is also true now as American beers, uh, you know, creative American beers are filtering back uh, overseas in lots of different ways, um, which stresses just how important it is to try those in their um, you know, native, 
country native regions, you know, at those breweries that are making them to, to be able to taste exactly what they're doing. Um, and it's the same everywhere, right? Uh, it's the same whether you're drinking lager in Germany or you're drinking triple in Belgium or you're, or you're drinking Cascale right here in London. Um, you know, so you, anyway, nonetheless, you, uh, you decide that you want to focus the kernel on making hoppy beers with clarity, but you also are pulling in a lot of English tradition at the same time that you do that. Uh, you know, if I look at say now what your tap board looks like, which, you know, maybe has evolved over the last uh, decade, maybe not. Hmm. Um, now you still base a lot of the beer styles. Most everything is pretty sessionable, 7% or below. Um, there are still a lot of traditional approaches to style, whether that's Porter or dry stout. Um, uh, and yet they all seem to have, you know, you've got some, uh, saisons and uh, table beer there, you know, pulling a little bit of that Belgian tradition, but a lot of, you know, the, the more traditional, you know, the beers that you're making reference English traditions, but then put a kernel spin on it. Talk to me about how, you know, you idealize how you envision that. Or, or am I reading this incorrectly? No, no. It's, it, I think it's just, for me, a question of, I mean, our evolution, I suppose, as, as a brewery and how each of those different types of beers fits into that or each how, how they all kind of fit into the, the vision of the whole. Sure. Um, yeah, the initial impulse was to make, you know, a hoppy pale ale IPA. Um, our table beer is... Lesser Belgian style is actually just a, a lower alcohol version of that same idea, mm. which um, has always worked <laughs> surprisingly well. But uh, the other side, at least initially, was was also to do with, I mean, our heritage and tradition as as being a London brewery, and also you know, so growing up in Ireland drinking Guinness, you know, dark beers, just completely normal. Sure. And coming over here, it was a bit of a shock because London is the home of porters and stouts. And yet they were pretty much not quite extinct, but but very rare apart from Guinness. So, you know, Guinness came over here and, and you know, learned how to make porters and stouts and then took all this knowledge back to Ireland and obviously made a very successful name for himself. Whereas and all the great dom Guinness- dominate the entire world's economy yes, for, well, for dark beer. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas all the Guinness and uh, where all the porter and stout breweries that exist existed in London, the Barclay Perkins, the Trumans and all of these, you know, they've-, they've you know, they're gone you know some names still live on like courage but they live on as names they live on as breweries that have moved elsewhere and they don't make that many dark beers anymore um i mean i think there were points almost in the 70s and 80s where porter had almost become extinct in england and and as far as i you can probably correct me if i'm wrong but like something like anchor I, porter was at I certain will bow points to ron pattinson okay. on all of this well, well yes. uh, yeah but i anchor anchor porter was sure. one of the few porters yeah. still yeah. being brewed in in the world right like i mean there were also other baltic porters and stuff being brewed elsewhere but but england had almost lost that tradition yeah so moving over here from ireland and then just discovering that the the traditions and histories of dark beer had had been lost or or at least had lapsed was was kind of confusing actually considering i come you know coming from a dark beer drinking culture yeah um so why but why are people afraid of dark beers but the other the other moment the other inspiration behind that which is probably more forceful is um i was part of a, a home brewing club when i was home brewing before starting the brewery the london amateur brewers and there were a couple of members of that club who were members of another home brewing club called uh, the durden park beer circle uh, i don't know if you've come across them but they've done made you know in the 70s and 80s made self-published 
pamphlets where they'd gone into the archives, very much like Ron Pattinson does, extract the information and turning it into something that's usable for a modern day homebrew. So they would, you know, their recipes are all listed there by year um, and by style and scale to one gallon. So, hmm. you know, you can, they've changed all the, you know, the bushels and, and various sure, different. Sure, sure. You know, the, the, the difficult bits for us to comprehend into something comprehensible uh, that we could turn in as homebrewers into, into something usable. And I remember the first moments, um, one of the members there, a guy called Mike, brought in a, it was a Flowers Christmas Stout from 1868. And, you know, he just passed it around and it was, you know, that was another one of those <laughs> moments of like, you know. Sure. A, drink, you know, growing up on Guinness. And even, you know, getting excited by, you know, the foreign export stout. And here was that same style of beer being elevated to something completely. Because, like, oh, okay, now this all makes sense. You know, as in why people drank dark beer in London hundreds of years ago. What, what, what was this tradition all about? And then you realize, okay, it's because, of course, the beers were really good. Otherwise, the tradition would have, you know, died out ages ago. What made them good for, for you as a brewer, as a, as a homebrewer even then, or as a brewer now looking at them, is that the way those recipes worked with London water? Uh, Precisely. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that. I mean, I mean I, that but would, first of all, you know, yeah. we're based in London. So there's a historical and cultural sort of reference that, you know, there's a whole, sure, we have a, sure. they hold a place with us, even if, even right. if, even if we've only been brewing here for, for 15 years. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. They they make sense in in sure. What it, does it need to mean any more than that? Um, this one here is one of those recipes. Actually, this is actually a Ron Pattinson recipe. So it's okay. It's an 1890 recipe, but uh, so the export stout is what the British would have exported in the 1800s to various of their colonies around the world. And uh, yeah, this particular one, we we yeah we try and keep at least the spirit to be in the spirit of the original beer. There's no dry hops. There's no yeah. interesting other things. There's just, uh, there's just uh, malt. Without dry hops, there's still a lot of hops in this. Just bittering. So yeah. just only bittering. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no late additions. There's no, there's none of this sort of more mm -hmm. modern way of dealing with things. Well, that would have um, been a very inefficient way to use those hops uh, back at the time. And given the agricultural, the challenge of agricultural production, no one could afford dry hops in a beer. No, like, oh, you know, no, no, no. that would be so wasteful. Why would you do that? Yeah. Um, so what are, but the, the yeah. other thing I suppose that I not really come across is uh, brown malt. I mean, brown malt is just, I suppose, what makes a specific London flavor prominent in a dark beer. It, it's kind of the use of brown malt is one of sure, the, the, the sure. main signifiers. Um, so, it, you know, the, I suppose the brown malt in here is what kind of brings the smoky, kind of tarry, tobacco-y sort of notes. It mm -hmm. kind of gives an edge of leather or something like that. You know, it's not just coffee and chocolate, which are lovely flavors, and, you know, we, we play with them in other places, but right. all of the old London recipes that we cleave to are specifically kind of saturated in a certain brown malt sort of way, which is, to me, kind of both old-fashioned and kind of also really London, you know, kind of sure. slightly foggy slightly slightly <laughs> smoky you know maybe sure. too much traffic on a you know on a bridge over the river thames or something but it's um that's the signature of of london flavors i think as far as as far as i understand it i want to i want to talk about brown malt. i just want to mention this as an aside if anyone um who's listening is a, a craft beer brewing subscriber and all access subscriber we actually have a class on making your own brown malt 
with uh, Mike Karnowski of Zebulon Artisanales in North Carolina, where he got goes through the process because brown malt is not really available commercially in the United States. You you would need to make it yourself, but he goes through the process of how to create that yourself. Um, and as an aside, I was just talking to Mike earlier this week or late last week, and he's releasing a box set of the Rise and Fall of London Porter um, with, with six different beers that trace that. Uh, um, he is a fanatic, and uh, you know, so there were also American Brilliant. brewers following Brilliant. Ron's work and others uh, watching this. Um, you know, but that's that's just an aside and a reference for those that are subscribers. I, I want to, you know, what for you? Talk to me about how you use brown malt and porter um and how you build how these historical recipes um you say build this kind of uh london idea for what porter is sorry i'm just trying to i'm just trying to pick apart what's in each of the different recipes sure i mean all of so yeah this one that we're trying now the export style is just pale malt brown malt and black malt i suppose what's hard to know is how what we interpret an old say black malt to be Sure. You know, we had this issue last week where our molster says, oh, our black malt isn't in spec. I don't want to send you any. And we're like, thanks, that's good. And then we're also like, well, so how do you measure that? And they're like, well, it doesn't quite. Because we've had batches before of, uh, like the last time it happened was with the with our dry stout where we got a batch of, uh, in this case, it was chocolate malt. We made the beer and the beer came out brown rather than black. And, you know, it's actually very hard to measure things like color, especially on the, on, on the molster's level. So when we were trying to interpret what something was, what color something was, you know, from a recipe 150 years ago, we don't really know what it was like. Do we know what it tasted right. like either? Do we, you know, so the variables. The black and white photos uh, or the. They didn't help. Engravers no. didn't help that much. No, yeah. no. So, you know, in some ways you you are guided by a certain subjective choice as sure. to what you sure. think. And, you know, I think as a brewer, you're always asking yourself, you know, I suppose the question of what is the most important thing about your job. And you know, most brewers would fall on the, let's just make something that tastes really good. I mean, if there's a choice to make something more accurate, you know, then we'll think about it. But we've already made this choice to like ferment this in stainless steel. You know, we're keeping it away from from wood, which it would have been fermented right, back right. then. You know, the, the, we don't have the same yeast. I mean, we could probably use the yeast from the same brewery, but that sort of sample might have been taken 50 years ago and then a hundred years ago, what were they been doing? They weren't, bank, they weren't banking them at negative no. 80, uh, you know, in the uh, 1850s, in the 1850s. No, 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 they weren't. Um, but we have obviously run those experiments too. Sure. So, you know, on the board we have a vatted porter, which is, or a vatted stout porter, which is basically this beer that we're trying, but that's been, that one was fermented in one of our footers and then, you know, aged beer, then blended with fresh beer and then packaged. So it's a, it's a whole completely different thing. Hmm. Um, it's Do kind you, of funnier when, yeah. when you ask about, like, specifically about the brown malt. So, you know, we picked out, so the, the re this is a Truman's recipe, so it's, it's a, it is a London recipe. So we kind of think it to be typical in terms of the, the malt bill used. But, um, yeah, sort of going through the, the work of, like, Ron Pattinson are, are going through the, the Durden Park Beer Circle book. The difference between the recipes is, is very, very small. You know, the, the proportions and percentages of different grains, is, it doesn't vary very much because, you know, if, if I had a brewery back then, I made a stout that was whatever, say, let's say 7%, and you made one that was around the same strength. They, I mean, they didn't have the plethora of choices that we right, have in terms right. of molten hops. And, and maybe there was also a certain communal expectation of what a beer like that should be. So there may have been some outliers, but most of the beers 
aren't actually that different from one another. So while we may have played around with recipes, it kind of, again, comes down to a subjective choice is whether you want maybe sort of brown malt higher in the mix or black malt down. You can find a recipe that will suit that almost. So it, it isn't really the specificity of it. I think through the different layers of translation we have to make in order to interpret what that recipe would be gets a little bit lost, you know. If we made a brewery, you know, we've done Park, Barkley Perkins recipes from the same era as this Truman's recipe. And, I mean, to our mind, there isn't enough of a difference, really, once we've interpreted to fit in our brew right. house. So, you know, so a lot of those small differences And you're also lost. capturing snapshots in time because oh, okay. all of those recipes also constantly evolved. They evolved at the exactly. same time exactly. that the technology around the ingredient production was evolving. I mean, this is the Industrial Revolution. Things are happening, moving quickly, um, you know. And so any, everything was a moving target then just as it continues to be now as all of our ingredients still change on a year-to-year basis and we're much more conscious of those agricultural inputs and you know and all of those pieces from from your perspective though um the the brown malt piece how big of it is you know generally in this recipe you know in terms of percentage and what do you think that it does in is this middle ground you know between um you know the dark the uh very dark uh chocolate malt or black malt that you're using and uh and the pale malt uh you know the base malt it obviously has to film for, become some sort of bridge between those two. Yeah. Um, I just sorry, I'm trying to remember what percentage this is. I think it is close to, I'm guessing 8%. Yeah, the brown malt just rounds out the black malt, I think, with, with that sort of leathery, tarry, mm-hmm. tobacco y sort of notes. I, I think maybe also that we have it in, in our beers to such a degree that it becomes like it's like with the railway tracks overhead you know i don't hear them you probably <laughs> sure. noticed all of these things going what are these interruptions they're just like breathing you know yeah. you, you just live in this environment they become second nature sure i think the brown malt in our dark beards is, is so much a part of it that i'm i actually sometimes struggle to pick it out yeah um where do you where do you get your brown malt from uh all pretty much all of our malt comes from simpsons uh, Simpson, yeah, Simpsons Point. Mm-hmm. So their 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 maltings is an hour and a half north of here, sure, just on the Norfolk sure. Suffolk border, and um, they, yeah, I mean all of their malt is is really good, but their coloured malts are specifically, specifically they. I seem to think that yeah, I, I feel they put a bit more care and effort into than than some yeah. others, but um, but yeah, again, how a brown malt approximates a brown malt you know from 150 sure. years ago who knows and you know even before this you know there are recipes with diastatic brown malts where you might have 100 percent of the grist would be just brown malt and then and we we haven't got hold of any diastatic brown malt i'm, I'm sure you're the guy you just mentioned probably Mike, could yeah. sort us out some at some point but right. you know that, that's a whole other level of you know a brown beer that right. we are yet to experience talk to me about hops in this uh you know export porter um or am I? Did I switch beers accidentally there? Uh, no, no, no. So we just—that was an export stout, and the next one is an export porter. Oh, okay. Um, so that's export stout. Okay. Um, I should also, like I noted, I, that is, say, for an export stout, for a British stout, feels more bitter than I would have typically ascribed to a British stout. 
Oh, okay. Um, but again, this is brewed to the 1890. But again, how did they measure bitterness in those days? And what did they, sure. what does that tell sure. us? Um, I think, you know, what a I'm lot trying, of those beers yeah. would have been very bitter just because of the exportness of the, sure. know, the title, because those things would have been, you know, shipped and stored and, and transported. And obviously they had figured out by that point in time that hops in a beer helped with preservation. What I, I am simply saying that in the sense that I think that, uh, you know, American brewers now have a bit of a caricature of American being hoppy and British being maybe a little more malty and sweeter. And I don't know that that always holds true. Um, I think that that might be a shorthand that doesn't always serve the ideas of these beers themselves. That's all I, that was my oh, only. No, 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 it's, it's a, but that's a, I mean, that is a point that we deal with on a daily basis, I suppose, because, yeah. it, well, you know, it's kind of the, the question of the heart and soul of any type of beer is is tied up in that. Um, uh, for example, with an IPA, you know, we still, you know, we still keep our IPAs to what, you know, we like in terms of bitterness, which, you know, it might be a 7% beer with 50, 55 IBU. Whereas uh, there's a newer, more modern kind of New England's interpretation of an IPA, which has got much less bitterness. And so now when a customer comes to the bar and orders an IPA, what are they thinking of? You know, are they thinking of something that's bitter and clear? And well, I suppose modern, sure. in modern parlance, we'd call that West Coast or, or something. And then there's now an East Coast and a New England style, which is actually quite a different beer. And so there is this, you know, that's it gets a, even that, crazier that, now, Evan, because oh now no. the West Coast IPAs have gotten less and less bitter too. Is that happening um, over? In, it's, is it's, that happening there? I thought it's just. You know, oh I, I no. was wondering, is that in the UK? No, People just willfully misinterpreting everything. We're finding a few that are still willing to get get like really grippy with those, you know, seventy plus IBU. Uh, where we're only we, a few, but it's oh. fewer and fewer, and now it's more common to even find these West Coast IPAs in that, you know, fifty to maybe sixty, you know, IBU. Anyway, um, that's a whole nother subject. None, that is. All, all, that is. All, I just found it interesting, and, and do find it interesting that it, some of the stereotypes that we might hold around these things maybe don't you know, don't explain a hundred percent of everything that there's always exceptions to these. And there's, you know, when you get into a place and you taste the breadth of the beers, th there's always more to it than you expect, you know, from the kind of limited focus and limit, you know, what gets imported and what you might have an experience with. Um, and so British, British stout in this sense, especially historically really firm and bitter. I mean, with a yeah. you know, good kind of, you know, punchy dark malt note, um, you know, a little kind of acidic edge to it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I mean, a, a decent amount of bite. I think also you probably notice it even more with porters because, you know, for, for at least in, in the UK, I mean, you know, stouts became associated with Guinness. Yeah. But obviously traditionally stouts were a stronger beer than a porter. Uh, and so stouts became associated with Guinness and porters became associated with, you know, generally a slightly more ruby, fruity kind of rounded beer mm -hmm. that often didn't have much much um, bitterness whereas you know again going back to these historical recipes stouts and porters were often pretty much the same family just you know one slightly stronger than the other right um and so you know a porter like this still has quite a half of bitterness you have the bitterness from the the hops and you have a bitterness from all of those you know burnt dark malts um you get them just layering up on top of each other, which I suppose reflects exactly where this particular beer came from. Because for us, when you're kind of thinking about an IPA and its relationship to 
you know, a well, historical IPA in relationship to a, a modern IPA. You know, the modern IPAs that are, you know, born on the west coast of the States, you know, using that clean California yeast and these new American hops like, well, go back to the beginning and, and think of something like Cascade. You know, you have this bright hop flavor profile and these beers are not being stored away and transported halfway around the world. They're being, you know, served as fresh as they possibly can be. And the whole experience is, is quite different. So for us with a beer like this, it, it's this was originally that old IPA recipe that was shipped to India, except it was porter because porter was the drink of the soldier. You know, it was only the officers that could afford the IPAs. <laughs> really? Yeah, there was six or eight times more porter shipped to India than IPA. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, because it's a drink of the, the you yeah. know, it's, it's much easier to make. You know, it doesn't have to be clear. You can hide any load of flaws, you know, as a, sure. you know, oh, we've all been homebrewers and, and managed to hide <laughs> some flaws in a dark beer, whereas a, you know, a, a precise pale beer, you don't sure, get away with sure. much. Um, so it's Especially much, at that time where, again, malt, malt production was pretty variable and, uh, you know, exactly. yeah, yeah. much less consistency in the industrial, you know, malt output of the time. Anyway, I want to, let's talk a little bit more. Let's talk more about this porter because there's, you know, you've also got a kernel twist on it um, and there's, your, there are interesting ways that you approach this, uh, and I really want to dive into this idea of India Porter uh, as something that uh, we should bring back again, or maybe it actually exists in some broader sense as Black IPA and Cascadian Dark Ale, and that there actually really is a historical precedent for this idea of Black IPA. Maybe there is a history there that we can dive back into. Before we, before we talk about that, brewers, are you looking for the best beer, meat, and cider recipes on the planet? Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National Homebrew Competition medal-winning recipes. American Homebrewers Association members have access to nearly 1,400 trusted and tested recipes, plus a Zymergy Magazine subscription, exclusive discounts, live webinars, instruction videos, and more. Plus, sign up for a membership by December 31st and select a free brewing book, a $25 value. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org slash cbbpod. Also, building a brewery requires coordination, equipment, supplies, funding, and more. It's enough to overwhelm any savvy brewer. Lotus Beverage Alliance simplifies the process, offering all of the elements for your business in one place. Need an ally for your brewing venture? Their team of engineers, brewery consultants, and financial advisors are here to help. With Lotus on your side, you can focus on what you do best, brewing exceptional beverages. All right, Evan, I'm, I'm, I love this idea of India Porter. Um, that, uh, you know, there are still American brewers, I imagine, who think of black IPA as a West coast, Pacific Northwest, West coast invention. Um, but I love the idea that there might, there, there is this uh, strong historical precedent for it with this hop forward, uh, uh, Porter here. So I, I think the answer to the last question is, is how much, what you think the relationship between a modern IPA is with something that would have been shipped to India. So if you kind of think that an in, you know an IPA that you would have drunk in India that would have survived the journey, I suppose they would have been rebottled there and 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 whatever. How that relates to something that you know might come out of the west coast of the states now, you know, to, to have a beer that that is this hoppy that would then have been shipped halfway around the world, you know, what would it have what would it have tasted like? But you know there there are those. I mean I think they're quite yeah I don't think they hold up to scrutiny. But the stories of you know the shipwrecked kind of 
boat carrying IPA that kind of washed up on a beach near Liverpool. And then people found all these casks of beer that was destined for India and obviously tapped it and drank it. And that, that created the craze for this new concept of India pale ale. I mean, it sounds quite far-fetched, but if all we're saying is that, you know, this beer was not shipped halfway around the world and somebody thought it was quite good before they sent it out, you know, there's probably somebody at the brewery. Pretty sure that there's, there's some- There's probably 99% of people at the brewery thought, oh God, it'll be nice in six months time, but let's send it off. And there's one person going, oh, I don't know. I quite like it the way it is, you know. Sure. Um, and I'm sure but that the hopping were, rate, I'm sure there was the hopping like, rates, I, I think this is going to be good in six months. Let's just put it in our own barrel and hold on to this so we can have it here, you know, in another six months um, after it takes the edge off. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And nonetheless, I mean, we don't have to. I mean, we go through all of these hoops. Oh, we can. We to can. just, you know, to try to create some idea like there's more authenticity to something just because oh, no, it no. has this historical precedent. So, and I think that that's not necessary in the world of beer, but it's fun to think about. Oh, yeah. That it, I think it's fun to think about in the sense that what's old is new again. And we always feel like we're inventing new things. But the reality is that, you know, we all exist in some big cycle and, uh, you know, history repeats itself, doesn't it? That, uh, that sometimes these things come back again and they come back again because the flavors are good and people, they resonate with people. Um, and there's something to it. I even, you know, what we have in hazy IPA, uh, you know, there, Precisely. there have been yeah, these, yeah. you know, sweeter uh, histories of beer and, uh, you know, from time to time. And that doesn't define all of it. It just, uh, you know, it's a moment and then the moment's gone and we come back to it. We'll come back to the future. This is just interesting though, because, you know, thinking about a, uh, historical foreign porter, uh, export porter with this kind of hoppiness. I mean, it really does have a lot in common with, but, yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I I mean it should make clear that this one we have specifically not held to the original hopping schedule. We so have tell, it, tell me about that. Sure. But we've just yeah. hopped it as we would a modern IPA. Okay. So it's it's kind of this is the reflection you know, in the way that a modern sure. IPA reflects an old IPA. This is your this bridge. is a reflection of an of an old right. export India porter recipe. So the base, you know, the malt bill and, and the grist are relatively how we would think they would be. Yeah. But it, it's hopped, you know, late hopped, dry hopped all those things that were probably a bit expensive to do back in the day. And then probably also people were maybe not necessarily interested in those flavors in the same way, you know. And this gets to that kernel idea again, right? Of, you know, clarity and focus and hoppy beer. So talk to me then how you take this foreign export porter, um, you know, that's clearly a hoppy style just in its, you know, purest form and, you know, put a, modern kernel spin on it i mean when we first started brewing this i didn't I, I wasn't aware of any other no sorry there was like one or two other historical recreations like around the uk but i mean they weren't they weren't all that up to much uh that i didn't i definitely didn't come across any export india porters or such like so i mean it, it wasn't that necessary sure. to, to do, do much else other than to to recreate it in in a way that we thought was at least faithful to the the idea you know, yeah we're yeah. not necessarily being exactly accurate in our recreation but at least we wanted to make you know beer that people would enjoy um we with all our beers pretty much we will we will change the hopping according to what we think you know whoever is brewing that day will have either inspiration or or you know or, or not, maybe just, just frustration. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the, obviously the good hops that work really well on this yeah. recipe keep coming back. We, we do tend to skew to American West Coast hops be, okay. because there is a certain 
to, to my mind anyway, there's a certain synergy between something, you know, the flavors in this and, and you know, specifically something like Columbus. This particular one has Equinaut and, um, uh, no, sorry, it's got Idaho 7 and HBC 431. So the two, again, two American varieties. You know, Idaho 7 has a certain woodiness as well to it. So, you know, hops like that or Simcoe that have a certain kind of woody, piney thing seem to work better than some of the fruitier hops. But we will probably try most hops with this beer. As, you know, we, we brew it relatively frequently. Um, we've done it with um, lots of English hops as well. It, it, it comes across beautifully but like as a quite different beer in the way mm -hmm. that you know an ipa hopped with english hops is is very different from an ipa hopped with american hops um sure so how do you what is a typical you know to to kernelize this historical recipe using modern hops when do you select those additions and uh, you know how do you balance out um those hop additions throughout this uh export India Porter. It's one of those things that's quite hard to answer because, you know, having, you know, we've probably been making this beer for 12 years. It's kind of, you get used to how to do it and it's quite hard to explain. Okay. As in, I, I don't really know how to explain. I I think a lot of it is trial and error. But with a beer like this, you know, you, the malt you, the malt push, you know, towards later hop additions in the boil, whirlpool hops, or, um, do you you know, now like push, uh, you know, uh, very early hops in any kind of, you know, specific way, whether that's mash hopping or wart, uh, first wart hopping, or, you know, are you cranking out some, you know, baseline bittering additions early on, uh, and then filling out some of the more modern hop flavor towards the end of that? How, what's the most broader of process? That. Most okay. of that, um, across most of our beers, we will first wort hop, um, we sorry yeah I suppose sorry and we I should um supposed to clarify we have a our system is designed to use English leaf hops we can also use T ninety pellets mm -hmm. uh, and obviously we can use bittering um, liquid alpha acid right um, flowable hop products yes those guys um, our preference and and the majority of what we use still is is uh, leaf really so. Even in some of these American hopped, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was, yeah. I mean, I was talking to you about our bottle conditioning process, which being quite unique. I think using leaf hops as well is is is, is still also, or still has become um, less of a commonplace procedure. Um, you, you guys in Sierra Nevada, leaf hops, bottle conditioning, everything. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, the, the, it's good. The leaf hops do. The texture, the texture yeah. does. I mean, maybe the texture is slightly harder to pick in the darker beers because they already have a lot of texture. But in the paler beers, it is noticeable to me with, you know, when you, when, because we can make a beer with pellets and we can make a pretty much the same beer with leaf. Obviously, when we're dry hopping, we will just dry hop with T90 pellets. I mean, sorry, there are other ways you can dry hop with, right. with other, other forms of. Um, hot products, but no, we 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 use T ninety pellets uh, because it's it's uh, because it's leaf hops. Yeah, we will first word hop and then hop progressively towards the end of the boil. You know, maybe fifteen minutes before the end, ten minutes before the end, mm -hmm. five minutes before the end. We will whirlpool if we're doing if we're just using pellets, um, and then we will have a dry hop addition 
and that's probably yeah. across all of the beers that have you know significant hop, mm-hmm. hop loads in them like yeah like this porter you mentioned yeah that some of these pacific northwest less fruity but more woody and piney hops tend to work better with the the flavor component of that um are are there some that you find yourself going back to frequently for it yeah columbus centennial simcoe but uh, yeah it, it, it's kind of hard to know I mean, we still use a lot of Citra Mosaic in the brewery, but I mean, Centennial Simcoe and, and and Columbus, I suppose they were around when the brewery started for us to use. And I suppose we've evolved kind of, you know, with those hops to mm-hmm. a certain degree. So they're kind of tied up in our our DNA, you know, in our in in, in how we've learned to, to brew has always been kind of tied up with, with those particular hops, I suppose. Also a little bit of, yeah, Nelson's open. Even really? Really? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we had access to certain New Zealand hops through hop merchants over mm-hmm. here also from from the beginning. So, yeah, Nelson's open has been around with us all that way through. Nice, nice. Let's talk about fermentation in these stouts and porters. Um, you know, if you look at historical fermentation, as you mentioned, you know, would have been wood wooden vessels most you know most likely open top fermentation um you know you've got a uh you know cellar here of cylindriconicals and some fooders too um but you could you can use techniques with modern equipment to approximate some of the you know th- uh, approaches towards yeast stress and whatnot how do you how do you approach fermentation on uh, your stouts and porters um in terms of yeast choice and then uh, maintaining healthy fermentations through the process i mean i suppose the, the all the stouts and porters even even the ones with lots of hops in they're, they're still such a malt dominated beer that yeast wise we will usually use our house strain is is a version of you know the california nail mm. yeast so most of these will have the california nail yeast however we do have another english strain that we use for other beers like the bitter we we had a taste of sometimes we'll use the that yeast, which is an old London ale strain, um, sometimes we use that for the porter or the stout. It sometimes it seems to strangely make less difference than I think it should. Really? But then you know we rarely we rarely repitch from either of these beers. Mm. We will sometimes, but it depends on the the brewing rotation. We will usually have some fresh yeast from you know a, a pale ale or an IPA. Um, so I suppose we have to be, you know, we don't have to be completely on it in terms of the fermentation, as in you know, we're not going to carry it on for another couple of generations after it has been through any of these beers. Um, I guess the same the flip side of it can be said for, you know, the America's favorite uh, hazy IPA yeast, London Ale 3, that uh, you can make perfectly clean and clear beer with that if uh, you approach it from that kind of perspective, or you can make yeah. soft and fruity beer with that if you approach it from that perspective. Yeah. And so that's I, all I think the, how you use it, right? The bitter we tried is, I think, is that ale strain, which is, you know, it, it's kind of, it's it started as a London Ale thing and now has become... Yeah, if you purchase this yeast from, you know, in a different form from another supplier, it's got a label of a, a brewery attached who are specifically known for making hazy IPAs. So it is the yeast for using to make hazy IPAs, whereas also being, you know, the traditional London beer yeast for, you know, making your porters and stouts yeah, because that's yeah. that's London brewing. But you can make it low ester and, uh, you know, again, just... And, and clear. Yeah. 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 So, so you just go for a, a pretty clean fermentation, then most 
primarily using Chico on these. Yeah. I mean, again, it, I think it comes down to a certain, a certain idea of a certain clarity. You know, with beers like this, I think mm-hmm. we want just, you know, the malt body and the malt focus to be the point of the beer. And yeah, that California nail yeast does always really allow something else to shine. I mean, yeah, that there's, I can understand the argument that you might want a bit more complexity. Um, but we found when using the London ale yeast that it doesn't necessarily, you know, mm. it changes the beer slightly, but it doesn't, you know, it adds as much as it takes away. It depends to some degree on what it is exactly that you're looking for. What, and what um, do you, can, can you articulate that in a more, you know, mm. I'm curious what that is. What does it add? What does it take away? Even fermenting it to kind of minimize the esters with, with the London ale yeast, it's still a lot more estery than, than the Chico yeast. Um, and, sure. and it, the, you know, the, I suppose the question of the esteriness or not of what you want the final beer to be is perhaps a personal opinion. Um, and also how it affects how the, the hops shine through. I think, yeah, with the Chico yeast, I think they, they, the hops come through a little bit more and the esters being a bit lower means that the malt profile to my mind is a little bit more precise. However, you know, again, we've been using that Chico yeast since the beginning and we've only been using the London L3 yeast for a couple of years so you know again once you something is so much part of sure, your dna sure. it's really hard to evaluate in a way that's yeah actually yeah. impartial you know it's just it's kind of trying to think about how you breathe you know it's like sure i don't well, know we've been talking a little for a while now about brewing let's pull back out a little bit let's um you know let's look at it from thirty thousand feet looking at where the kernel is now versus where the kernel was when it started and looking forward, you know, say five years, what are you happy that you've achieved over the last 10 years creatively and business-wise? What do you still hope to achieve? What is still left to accomplish for you in the next five or 10? And maybe five or 10 isn't the right future to think about. We're in a, you know, a city where you have breweries that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, where you have you know, uh, a monarchy that's extraordinarily old where, you know, history is measured in thousand years plus. Uh, but what is, what would you like to achieve with the Colonel? And uh, what are you happy about achieving so far? And that actually seems like about eight really big questions. Um, the sense of the long view of time though, I, I mean, I really hope it's not just a London thing, but I mean, that is one of the it's a slight tangent to what you've asked, but I suppose it's kind of fundamental to how I might answer it. But, you know, there are decisions people make for short-term benefit or gain or just because they have to, and there are decisions people might make because they hope this will be the right decision in the long term. Uh, and, I, I mean, you just it just feels like the world we live in now, nobody's given enough time to make decisions for the long term. So we're making decisions for short-term gain, which, you know, in the end, maybe prove detrimental um, across all aspects of, of our, our lives. Um, no, I didn't really start with much of an idea of an end point. Um, I suppose it would be nice to try and think that we started with a certain you know, set of principles of what we thought was important about what it is we were doing. And um, I mean, I think the beers have evolved since we started, I, I, but they're also still very recognizably ours, you know. Our pale ales and IPAs are still what I consider to be 
at least true to the spirit and essence of of our initial pale ales and IPAs, in the sense that I, I, like we still haven't brewed a you know something that would be identifiable as a New England IPA, for example. Not that I don't like them, but it's just that not it's not who we are. And I think to have that sort of relationship with what it is that you produce is something that we collectively as a brewery have that's strong enough to allow us to produce the same beers is something that's actually yeah that that, that does make me that does make me happy um but I, yeah in terms of ambitions goals i don't yeah i don't i don't i don't think i think like that really um there's just a constant sense of i suppose of evolution and and looking after looking after the workforce making sure that you know people are happy making sure that the beers are tasting good it it really doesn't have to to my mind be much beyond that but then i think there's a different question as to maybe how that reflects on the wider world of brewing yeah, but i think that's actually slightly beyond my ability to to actually really consider properly um yeah, I don't know. I think I think just being focused exactly on what's, you know, that beer that we're brewing today. Obviously, there are some bigger picture things that one has to think about, but it's just about being present in a certain moment of, you know, respecting each batch of beer as it comes rather than just churning out another iteration. Just making sure that you're, the energy that we all have is, is on that particular batch of beer rather than on just repeating a task that doesn't have a meaning anymore. I think this trying to make that present for all of us is, is kind of how I see what I'm trying to do just here today. From my perspective, there's this interesting grounding of innovation and tradition and this interesting melding of those two that uh, there is this kind of historical underpinning to what you do. There's this, you know, you, you fully understand the weight of history while at, uh, and the environment that you're brewing in. Well, at the same time, you understand that time also moves forward and that agriculture and processes also, you know, will continue to evolve and develop and that the things, you know, the tools that you have at your disposal to make compelling things for people to drink, you know, are, are continuing to expand and uh, finding a way to pull those in while also grounding them and rooting them in this history and tradition of what you are. That's an interesting thing. And that's, I think what makes the kernel interesting. Thank you. <laughs> on that note, let's just bring this to a close. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. If you're looking for an ideal German lager hop, try Amira from HVG, available through BSG. Trust the experts at Old Orchard to schedule freight for your flavored craft juice concentrate blends. Pro Brew as rotary can fillers in stock with two to four week lead times. Omega stylized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National uh, Homebrew Competition medal winning recipes and Lotus Beverage Alliance's team of engineers, brewery consultants, and financial advisors are here to help with your next brewery project. If you enjoy this podcast, go to beerandbring.com, click on that subscribe button. Uh, and if you are an all access subscriber, go back and check out Mark, Mike Karnowski's uh, of Zebulon Artisan Ales class on making your own brown malts. And then of course, brewing 
with it. Uh, you know, he is also a disciple uh, of these historical recipes and doing some cool stuff there. And it was fun to, to hear that come back up again in this topic. Evan, um, thank you for sharing some beers and some thoughts with me. If people want to learn more about the Colonel, where do they learn more about you? Both in real life and out there on <laughs> yeah, the internet. In real life, in real life, we're based in Southeast London. Um, well, you can easily find us on yeah thecolonelbrewery.com or there's an Instagram at, at Colonel Brewery. Um, yeah, there's a list of uh, places in London that serve our beers on on the website as well. If you're in town, because there are you know a number of good London pubs, which I'm, I'm sure you'll take time to visit on your trip here. To, Matt, that, that you can, Matt gave you can me a good it. list. I'm trying to take them off. I'm trying to take them okay. off. But that coming out fun. here uh, to the tap room under what Arch Seven and getting to hear the trains roll over us uh, just feels like the you know a Colonel experience. Now, of course, if you're here on a Monday or Tuesday, you won't be able to do it here in the tap room. You need to go find another place to drink those. Uh, but there are plenty of places like the place I was at last night in the Harp in uh, Covent Garden. Um, you know, so some of the more respected pubs also sell your beer, which speaks a lot to uh, how much even the hardest of hardcore traditionalists uh, have an appreciation for the beer that the Colonel makes. And on that note, I think we should bring close. Cheers, Evan. Thanks for talking with me. Thanks very much for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.